It's not that you're going to be able to stop all bad things from happening, all compromises from happening, but you can't just take the stance that, well, some of it's okay and we'll find a way to pay for it and so on and so forth. You really have to do really exceptional cybersecurity operations. And the best way to influence cybersecurity operations, I think to your point about AML, is having some teeth behind a set of conditions and compliance requirements that guide you toward making the best decision on maybe how you build the cryptography inside of your system. Otherwise, you just say, I'm going to do what I think is right. Compliance comes along and says, we need you to hit a certain bar that we then have confidence and trust you're doing the due diligence from a cybersecurity risk and compliance perspective. Welcome to the Innovation and in Compliance Podcast, part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Join us every week as we talk with industry innovators who are making compliance to help business run more efficiently and at the end of the day, more profitably. Here's your host, Tom Fox. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Back for another episode. Today, I'm thrilled to have with me Steve Horbath. Steve, first of all, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Thanks, Tom, for having me on. Steve, could you tell us a little bit about your professional background and your current role? Sure. So I've been at Telos almost 17 years now. In August, I think it's 17. Started at Booz Allen Hamilton, actually in the middle of college. I was a computer science major at the University of Maryland. I started working full-time and going to school full-time. And back then, I was in security very early, and the folks in security were kind of treated as the red-headed stepchildren of IT. We were always the department of no, for instance. And so I started eight years working both internally at Booz Allen on their corporate systems teams. And then I worked for some clients in the central Maryland area. And then I left and joined Telos in roughly 2006. And since that time, we've been mostly predominantly, I'd say, focused on cybersecurity for elements of the federal government from the U.S. intelligence community, elements of the Department of Defense, you know, State Department and DHS and a lot of other customers that are ancillary to that, federal adjacent for the most part. We do do some commercial work, but it's certainly a market for us to move into as opposed to something we do a tremendous amount with. Steve, you've held a number of roles at Telos. Could you kind of walk us through those? Sure. So I was hired to start our intelligence community practice at Telos. We had sold our product into one of the three-letter agencies in the U.S. intelligence community, which our product being Zacta, which is really geared at it was a web device, uh, web application that was focused on helping automate, you know, risk and compliance activities for that organization or any organization in the federal government. This is back when it was based on D663 for those that have the compliance background. But we sold it and we didn't have professional services really with the technical acumen that were able to go in and do the implementation and integration of the product on site for that customer. And it requires fairly high clearances. So it was kind of stolen away from dues by Telos. And from that point on, I've been predominantly involved in development or the services side or the strategy for the exact product suite, which again is geared all really about risk and compliance activities. So that is the subject I really would like to focus on with you. Could you describe Exacta, what it is and how a compliance or other corporate professional might use it? So... It's a web-based application. It's become a platform, actually, after all these years. It initially started in roughly 2001, and it was a, an application that allowed organizations to walk through collection of kind of the really rigorous details associated with some of those federal standards. Standards like DITSCAP and then DICAP, 
the D663 in the U.S. intelligence community, obviously NIST, Risk Manager Framework, NIST 837, or NIST, the Catalog of Controls, which is NIST 853. So it was a web service that anybody could log on to that was connected to the network. Obviously, you had to have credentials. You were given an account and access. But it walked you from a workflow perspective through the elements of a given compliance framework or regime and allowed you to kind of parse out work associated. As you know, there's really a lot of good to be done if you've got a set of organization doing the engineering, but you've got an independent set of testers, for instance, and then you maybe got an in independent group of people that are making decisions on whether or not risks are okay to be preceded. If it's okay to proceed with fielding a system with certain risks and whether or not you have things that require future risk treatment or if things require what they call the government plan of actions and milestones. The system parses kind of all that out it also does something called an automated generation of evidence. So as you're collecting details inside of Exacta, which you're given the ability to do is then reproduce that set of evidence in any representation you need, whether it be a audit document or whether a body of evidence, a subsystem security plan. These are kind of the hallmarks of the product when it was incepted roughly in the early 2000s, 2001. And so it evolved. As most products evolve, it got some steam, got some customers, and it evolved. We built another product called Continuous Assessment. And this was our answer to the age-old question, well, I've done all this really good compliance work, I've done all this good security work, but I don't have to worry about it for three years. In the government space, there's this concept of a three-year ATL authorization. And most of the time, they would be out of compliance by the next Microsoft Patch Tuesday. Back in those days, they would drop a handful of security updates and organizations would say, well, I don't have to worry about this for a few years. So we decided to kind of emerge with a new product that was a sister product to the Exacta piece called Continuous Assessment. And it gave us the ability to kind of continually validate a set of controls based on a, a host agent, essentially an agent-based technology. This is in 2005. When you hear about things like continuous monitoring or ongoing assessments, we actually built something that did that in 2005. And we brought it to our customers and we said, hey, look what we can do now. We'll never fall out of compliance. And they all were like, we don't really need to worry about that. I got three years. It's not something I have to sweat. So the tenor of the world has obviously changed. And we've continually taken that product and evolved that. It was evolved into a product called Flux for a while that was um, try to take a agentless-based approach to that, where we would leverage any of an organization's third-party products or outputs of the third-party products they were already investing in and ingest it and do an automated mapping from security vulnerabilities or given set of configurations against a set of eye controls. And we're agnostic. So it should be noted that, you know, we talk a lot about NIST, but we support ISO standards and GDPR, you know, and a bunch of other main international compliance standards. The iteration of the product after that was called Continuum, and we're finally at something called Exacta IO. So Exacta 360 is kind of our bread and butter from a risk and compliance framework management perspective. It's an enterprise level product, but it also works really well for organizations that have to go through compliance regimes like cybersecurity framework, the FedRAIA process, I said 27,000. So 9,000 or 27,000, but yeah, that's kind of the background of the product. Steve, one of the reasons I was so excited to visit with you is along the lines of the following. I come out of anti-corruption compliance. There are obviously many different forms of compliance. And what I saw when I started looking at other types of compliance, and I'll start with anti-money laundering, I saw banks and financial institutions far ahead, public and private corporations, 
in their money laundering risk management. One was because the regulators said they had to, and two, that was their biggest risk. And when I came across you guys, I saw that you had started in defense and military where you had a very specific set of risks and risk management strategies, as you mentioned, that you have worked with government contractors on. And so it struck me that U.S. public companies and private companies have finally awakened to the cybersecurity risk, whether it was always there, as you're probably about to tell me, or the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the uh, coming conflict with China have really put us on a non-kinetic permanent cybersecurity war footing it literally in every industry in the United States. It's all long-winded way of saying the developments you and your team at Telos and your industry has made and done for the government contracting industry needs to, I think, move to regular old U.S. public companies. And that's a long-winded introduction to say, are you guys having discussions with non-military contractors, with public companies, and do they understand the risk that you have seen for your career at Telos? Yes. So that's exceptional insight, I think, that you're drawing. And I think, yes, we have. And so I can dig into a lot of that. Let's start with the fact that when you talk about risk, a lot of organizations kind of group risks into one bucket for an organization, whether it's a set of financial risks or it's a set of risk for supply chain. I mean, material information, materials, material information. The word risk gets batted about considerably procurement risk, acquisition risk. So we make it very clear that what we focus on as an organization is cybersecurity risk, IT risk associated with cybersecurity. And we do that because it's probably by far the most difficult one to focus on. The concern and the level of threat and the level of vulnerability and the level of attention necessary to kind of conquer that problem is unlike any other one. And the difference between the U.S. and government, right? Whether it be the three-letter agencies, there's a few agencies I'm allowed to reference. Almost all of them we have non-disclosure agreements with, so I can't get into exactly who they are. But you can imagine, as we are the database of records, most of the U.S. Intel, so from a risk and compliance perspective. But when we talk about risk there, they don't have the concept of risk transference. So when you talk to a federal organization, especially in the DOD, and they say, we have to figure out how to mitigate these risks. It's never, let's buy an insurance policy and we'll transfer risk to another organization that's taking the financial responsibility for us. That's not really done in that sense. They're looking at what impact will this have from a potential loss of life perspective if there is a compliance failure on something. Let's confidentiality of people out into the open or the integrity of data. Like all of a sudden I've got a switch where my blue turns to red, which means my friends now look like enemies and I'm firing on one or the other. And then lastly, obviously availability. What if I don't have the service or the capability that I need at the time in order to affect the mission that I need to be able to affect? None of these just kind of get transferred to another org. Whereas at financials, you know, you have a liability policy from a side of liability perspective and you may say I need $50 million of coverage in the event that somebody gets all of my customers' personal information. That's a very different mentality that you start with. It's a mentality that they don't believe in almost any acceptable risk in certain circumstances. And I think that's starting to kind of be batted about in public companies as well. It's not that you're going to be able to stop all bad things from happening, all compromises from happening, but you can't just take the stance that 
well, some of it's okay and we'll find a way to pay for it and so on and so forth. You really have to do really exceptional cybersecurity operations. And the best way to influence cybersecurity operations, I think to your point about AML, is having some teeth behind a set of conditions and compliance requirements that guide you toward making the best decision on maybe how you build the cryptography inside of your system. Otherwise, you just say, I'm going to do what I think is right. Compliance comes along and says, we need you to hit a certain bar that we then have confidence and trust you're doing the due diligence from a cybersecurity risk and compliance perspective. The conversation that you and your colleagues are having with public companies, are they at the board level to help them understand the risk? And even though you mentioned some risk shifting strategies, people like Lloyds of London have said, we're not going to write cover for certain types of breaches. The regulators may penalize you if you don't disclose quickly enough. It's under GDPR. There's a huge brouhaha between Securities and Exchange Commission and a major U.S. law firm around whether that law firm has to disclose its clients who had their data breached in an attack on the law firm. So the collateral consequences can either be the types that you really can't fully shift the risk to, or there are another set of risks that brings up another set of problems. Do boards understand these other consequences? Tell so it's a great question. I, I would say that in some cases they do, in some cases they don't. So education at the board level is a very interesting topic, especially right now. I'm not sure if you're aware, but the Security Exchange Commission is coming out with a new rule associated with cybersecurity and having a responsible individual on a public board that has a background and understanding of cybersecurity. I think that's one thing that's happening. We were lucky enough to be invited to participate in something called Domino a few weeks ago. It's a relatively new conference that's put on by something called the Digital Director Network, DDN. And it's a tremendous number of board level individuals that are bringing together and having a conversation about this very topic. Because you've got some folks that are strong and kind of a cybersecurity and an IT background at the board, and they have trouble either articulating some of these concepts to the rest of the board, or they're being approached by boards that have none of it. They're consulting to boards that have none of it. So there's a tremendous interest right now to make sure the board is informed. I've seen more in the last couple of years than I've seen in the last 15 for sure, or 10 years before that. There's definitely awareness. Probably the biggest, most high profile things that happened that brought the attention to everybody was obviously like the Home Depot and the Target hacks. Those compromises, because they were such non-traditional ways to get into customer data or credit card information, they really opened everybody's eyes to what potentially they're fighting what the threats really were. And so I think that the conversations are happening. When we engage at the board level or at the CISO or CIO level or the senior risk officer level with organizations, because we do do work with public companies, you do do work with financial institutions. When we have these conversations, we try to wrap it around a framework that makes a lot of sense from an organizational perspective. My personal favorite, the one that we probably lean on the most in our consulting, is the NIST cybersecurity framework. The reason is because it's a very easily understood framework. It's nowhere near the in-depth and level of detail that, for instance, the risk manager framework out of NIST is, but it maps very easily. And we find that it really allows for the security operators, you know, the folks at the practical level doing the work, it gives them a, a language that they can articulate all the way up to the board. And so everybody's kind of speaking the same language. 
It gives them the ability to do this concept about where are we currently at? Where do we want to be? Current state versus the target state. And then there's a sense of maturity model inside of it. When we have these conversations and we're either educating or helping them kind of refine their programs, these are the kind of tools that we use to make sure that it's hitting home, that folks are understanding that. The risk transfer is not going to be your only options and heavily investing in the ability to do really good incident response, for instance, is not just making sure you have an incident response retainer and a lawyer, but also what's the pre-work that you have to do to get the right data to be able to quickly and efficiently identify what happened and remediate it and then be able to disclose because that disclosure time is becoming more and more of a concern from the SEC to the DOD, so on and so forth. So the work you guys are doing with public, I say U.S. public companies, meaning those are listed on the NYSE or other shares, and then private companies, privately held companies in supply chain. Because I've been thinking a lot about supply chain, certainly from the perspective of can you actually get the supplies? But you mentioned Target specifically. We have to talk about, I think, supply chain there. How do you help a company think through the structure of cybersecurity risk management when they have a massive supply chain? It's kind of a great question. And it's also the old adage, well, how do you eat an elephant? <laughs> you don't try to eat it whole. We eat it one bite at a time. So traditionally, what we see is a lot of organizations have attestation-based requirements with their supply chains. We do not do a lot with material supply chains. We do a lot with cybersecurity supply chains. So when we're focused on working with customers, it's usually very focused on what software, where are they sourcing their potential IT hardware from? Where are the companies that they're using for their internal software? Where are they located? What are their security procedures? How can they articulate if they're being diligent with their cybersecurity process? And, you know, we would be more inclined to work on a problem like SolarWinds than the target hack in general from a Telos perspective. But really the fundamentals are the same. It kind of goes to the reason why there's a ingredient list on the side of the box of cake you're going to make. You don't really know what you're putting in your body unless you look at that ingredient list. And when you're working with a partner or a supplier and they're providing you especially software, really helps to have what they call a software bill of materials. What is the ingredients on the inside of the software that I have to now be cognizant of as I run it inside of my enterprise and leverage it from a SaaS perspective. And that helps you really get a good idea for what's my exposure look like if a vulnerability or a threat is targeting one of these ingredients. So you had a phrase on your website, network attack services that I'm not familiar with. Could you explain what that phrase is and how you help companies manage risks around that? Sure. Network attack services is really an interesting concept, but it's kind of akin to how many points do you have to get into your home? Looking at the security of your home, for instance, if you look at what is your attack surface for somebody getting your house uninvited, whether it be the middle of the night, well, what do you have mitigation-wise? Well, I have three doors. I have three doors. I have a front door, a back door. I have a garage door. Well, that's great. Are you done? No. You have windows. Do you have windows on your first floor? Are they easy to be opened or closed? Can somebody break one? Or Yes, that's good. Okay, well, we have to be concerned about that. So those are your attack surfaces. What about your windows on the second floor? Well, I guess somebody could put a ladder up. Well, that's been done. People have taken a ladder and leaned it against the house while somebody's away and gotten in an upstairs window because they're less likely to have intrusion detection on it or what you call a traditional alarm system. And then you look at mitigations. Do you have 
alarms on your windows? Do you have motion sensors? If you think of a network, it's very similar. So your attack surface is, where are my potential points of ingress? Where can somebody find a way to egress or exfiltrate data? What are methods and mechanisms that they might do that? And one of the best ways to keep an eye on that is actually the MITRE attack framework. The vast majority of most organizations that get compromised, especially in the last few years, is through phishing, beer phishing, cat phishing, and phishing. A good security education program for your users tends to be a more dramatic impact than people realize. If you can teach your users not to click on links and emails or open documents, you're way ahead of the game. So let me ask, what are the three steps to creating an actionable cyber intelligence strategy? Cyber intelligence for a given organization or cyber intelligence at a national level? For a given organization. So first, everybody probably takes a slightly different tact at this, but you want to have some set of roles and responsibilities internally in an organization that have a stakeholdership. Because if you lean too heavily into the nobody can ever be compromised and we must make everything as secure as possible without the stakeholders for the company that maybe have responsibilities for revenue generation or sales or so on and so forth, you tend to get a very lopsided view and most of your program doesn't end up getting bought into or funded appropriately. And again, we, you kind of turn into the, what I mentioned earlier, that department would know, right? In the beginning, people don't want to work with you. And so security and compliance or risk and compliance ends up being more than anything avoided by the folks inside of your organization. That's not really what you want. You know what you want? You want a partnership from the security and compliance side of the house or the risk and compliance side of the house and the organization that is building applications or building widgets or doing whatever so that your organization's role, the security aspects of it, is to enable, to make sure that when they need materials, they get it, or when they need power, they get it, or when they need resources to do compute, they get it. So that it has the availability or that your secret sauce that's on the inside of your cake and the way that you put it together, they keep that protected so that other people can't just take and replicate your software or your whatever. So the first step really is making sure you kind of have the right people in the right roles as you form out, how do you plan to move forward with your cybersecurity risk and compliance due diligence? That usually means having somebody that is sitting ancillary to the IT department that's doing a little bit of watching, making sure that people are following security operations. And then also having somebody keep an eye on them. So who watches the watchers, whether that's the chief financial officers organization or audit, external audit firm. So once you kind of have those, you want to pick a standard, a framework that really works for your organization. If you're within the federal government, again, it's a pretty much a no-brainer. Anything you sell into the federal government, you're going to have to use NIST. NIST is by far the highest standard. And so there's this risk management framework, which I would not suggest for organizations that are not tremendously large. So if you're on large scale system integrator and you're building a lot of things and you're selling into the federal government, doing the risk management framework is great because it gives you a level of fidelity that almost nobody else uses. For most organizations, public and private, the voluntary adoption of a standard, like again, the NIST cybersecurity standard or even the ISO standards, the international standards, they're a great playbook to get you started and understand what do I want to be concerned with? And then where does my current state of maturity live and where do I need to be? And it's different for everybody. And so those are the two big parts of the beginning. And then the third, I think that people kind of forget is keep doing it. People tend to think of risk and compliance or compliance activities as a, I have to pass this final exam. I've gone to class all semester. 
I'm right at the edge there. I've got a cram for this thing or I have to write this last paper. And then I walk out and I have my grade and I'm done. Literally the next day, your next efforts should start. It should be all about continually validating, especially from a cyber perspective in today's world. So Steve, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode. But before we leave, I wanted to ask you if our listeners wanted more information on yourself, on Telos, or really any of the topics we've touched on, what would be the best place or places for them to go? Probably the best place would be Telos.com. And then we also have a news feed that's on Twitter called at Telos News. And so those are probably the best places to get information about myself, our products, and the Telos Corporation. We've talked a lot about risk and compliance here, but that's one facet of a much larger company. So we have a handful of other offerings. One's called Advanced Cyber Analytics, in which we do some really tremendous things that nobody in the market's doing right now. We also have Telos ID, which I'm not sure you're aware of, but we're a TSA pre-check contract holder. We process people's pre-check. It's, a, it's an organization that's geared fundamentally risk and compliance and cybersecurity on the inside and everything we do that kind of perseveres through it. I, for one, greatly hope we could continue this conversation. I do as well. Thank you kindly, Tom, for your interview. If you want to stay up to date on the latest innovations in compliance and help your business run more efficiently, subscribe to this podcast and help spread the word by leaving a review.